back when Mary Beth was pregnant with our first son, we moved from, from an apartment into like a little house. We were living in LA and it was so exciting to move from, from an apartment where we just had neighbors on top of neighbors and it was all cluttered and tough and tight to finally have a house and having a yard. And you know, it felt, felt really good. I think you could probably file that move under the general nesting umbrella. Like we were, we were getting ready, like preparing for this new phase in life as many of you have been doing this last week, getting into a new phase of life. Um, and as I was going through this nesting process and getting used to having a yard, I had to go out and, you know, I went out and bought some plants. I uh, got some lawn furniture. And I was really getting everything together. And right by, right by our door, uh, so, uh, the old tenant had left this large wooden pot, I mean, large metal plot, pot. And I was like, okay, I got to fill that with, like, something really nice. So I went out and bought this beautiful bougainvillea plant. It was like four, by th four feet by three feet. It was a good-looking plant just covered with those beautiful pink flowers. Do you guys, you guys know what those plants are? Yeah, they have those little papery pink flowers, and they do so well in this Mediterranean climate, and I've always wanted to have one, and finally I did. So excited. Uh, this, this little plant was, was a source of pride for me when people would come over. In fact, I remember Nathan and Leslie came, came down, and we had just put this plant in, and, it, and I, whenever people would come, they would compliment this plant, because it's big and beautiful right by the door. Um, and of course, of course, <laughs> did not stay that way. <laughs> With, within a few months, I noticed the flowers started to slowly disappear. I knew that the plant needed attention, uh, but that time I had a young baby, I had a job, I did not have a ton of time to pour into attending to this plant. So I neglected the plant. Over the next year and a half, the flowers disappeared entirely and the green leaves were overrun by caterpillars and eventually it withered down just to brown stems and thorns. I pass it on to the great mulching bin beyond. <laughs> the poor plant was the victim of neglect. Neglect. I had not intentionally mistreated the plant. I simply neglected it. I didn't respond to the signs that it was in danger right there in front of my door. It was right there, but I did nothing. Neglect. It is at the heart of all of the readings we have from today. In the gospel alone, there's neglect of neighbor, there's neglect of Moses and the prophets, there's neglect of Jesus, and ultimately there's neglect of the eternal ground of being we call God. Let's take a minute and recap this gospel story. Jesus starts with a rich man. This rich man wears purple and linen, symbols of place, connection to a foreign land. These are expensive things that come from far away. They're symbols of the rich man's role as a civic leader, a person of influence whose status bears responsibility for justice in the land. At his gate, there's Lazarus poor man 
tortured by illness and hunger. Notice the contrast. The rich man is covered with linen and feasts sumptuously every day. And Lazarus is covered in sores and longs for even the rich man's crumbs. Luke, the gospel reader, loves contrasts. He loves inversions. Look at this story. There's, it starts with the poor man longing for the crumb and ends with the rich man longing for the drop of water from Lazarus' finger. There's a suffering inverted to comfort and comfort inverted to suffering. The chasm and the gate. Even the names of these characters invert expectations. The rich man goes nameless. Nameless, while the beggar is named, the poor beggar who is licked by dogs. Dirty street dogs. Have you guys ever seen a dirty street dog? I've seen a lot of dirty street dogs in my rambles in this world, but I know the dirtiest street dog I ever saw. I was waiting for a train in Cuba, and <laughs> uh, I was in the middle of nowhere. This dog was mangy. There was hardly any, maybe like one or two hairs left on its body. It scabs, just horrible, poor, sad, limping creature. Nasty. In Judean cu uh, culture, dogs were filthy animals. These were like Cuban street dogs. And Lazarus is so afflicted that he is helpless to do anything to keep these nasty dogs from licking his sores. But Lazarus has a name in this story. The rich man, the, the man influencing society, making money, the man who would naturally have a legacy is nameless in the kingdom of God, but the guy who lives on the street with dogs licking him is a legend. So Lazarus and the rich man both die, and Lazarus reclines in the bosom of Abraham, as in Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. That's that Abraham and this bosom. Meanwhile, the rich man is tormented. And just for a second, as we're reading this story, try to put aside all the baggage we have about heaven and hell. Just for a second. Forget about Dante, Milton, and Looney Tunes, and whatever you have in your mind related to heaven and hell, the point of this story is not to describe the afterlife. Even if it were, this depiction does not match those common cultural misconceptions. Here, the rich man talks to Abraham. We get it. No, this is not a story about heaven and hell. It's a story about Lazarus, who is named, and the rich man, who is not. In particular... This story that Jesus tells is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Okay, last week we heard the parable of the shrewd manager, the guy who used his position to diminish the debts of those who were around him. You guys remember this? We talked about the difference between the economy of the world and the economy of grace. Right after this parable, there's a passage that, that the lectionary skips, and it goes like this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed Jesus. So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. 
Jesus calls out the Pharisees. He says, the things you love, God despises. We've seen this over and over and over again in Luke's gospel. God's love for the lost, the forgotten, the sick, the hungry. God does what the Pharisees and the rich man fail to do. God loves our neighbors. <laughs> Did you notice how the rich man connects with Lazarus when he's dead? He knows his name. Lazarus was not just any poor man in a rich man's town. He lived just outside the rich man's gate. The rich man knew his name. He knew that Lazarus, the specific man, needed help. But he neglected Lazarus. He neglected his neighbor. The amazing thing, the horrible thing, is how unchanged the rich man is in Hades. He still refuses to treat Lazarus as a full human being. He treats him like a servant. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. This guy is so selfish. He still does not understand the ways of the kingdom of God. Love of God and love of neighbor. This man only loves himself. Many theologians argue that the chasm in this story is the rich man himself, his stance. In the words, and his, it's his refusal to love God and neighbor, his lack of compassion. In the words of Henry Nouwen, compassion is born when we discover in the center of our own existence not only that God is God and people are people, but also that our neighbor is really our fellow human being. To acknowledge the full humanity of our neighbor, that's what's going on in this passage from Amos today. Like the rich man and the Pharisees, the people of Amos' time neglect the suffering of their neighbors. Alas, for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. In this case, Joseph is a symbol for the northern kingdom of Israel, which has been overrun. The people of Judah, the southern kingdom, are comfortable. They're not really upset about the suffering of their neighbors. They read the headlines, but they don't care. Which begs the question, am I grieved over the suffering of my neighbors? Am I grieved over the death of Terrence Crutcher or Keith Lamont Scott or the protests in Charlotte? Am I grieved over the 35,000 impoverished high school students that annually ace the SAT but are unable to attend college? Am I grieved over the 1,500 houseless men and women here in Santa Barbara? Am I grieved or do I sit on my couch, read the headlines, and neglect my neighbors? The point here is not that we should be sad. The point is that we have the opportunity to live into the relationships before us. 
we can end our neglect. We can turn from neglect and start to connect. We connect to the neighbors among us who are in need, to our community, to our Lazarus, to our neighbors. Maybe we do it here at St. Mike's. Maybe we do it through Cafe Picasso, giving food to folks who would otherwise not be able to eat. Maybe we do it through showers of blessing, restoring the dignity of those houseless folks that are in need of showers. Maybe we connect to God through Compline surfing and hiking or zazen or mindfulness or yoga or right here on Sunday morning. But together we connect with those at our gate. This week, this week I heard a story about this exact thing, about loving and connecting with the people that are right before us, the people who are in need. Um, there was an interview, maybe some of you heard it, there was an interview with Ryan Speedo Green. He's an opera singer, uh, uh, a black opera singer who's now singing at the Met. Um, he grew up as a troubled child, lived in a trailer park, he became violent, was put into juvenile hall, a juvenile detention, um, and eventually when he was in detention, he met someone that redirected his focus to singing, to the arts. Eventually, as we know now, he's made his way to the Met as an opera singer. But along the way, he had a teacher named Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown introduced Ryan to other opera legends and transformed his shame of being a black man performing opera into pride. One winter in New York, Ryan Speedo Green was still a poor student with no coat. No winter coat. And Mr. Brown noticed this, and he went out and bought Ryan a nice coat. Not just any coat, a coat from Nordstrom. He said he bought him the kind of coat that he himself would wear. He loved his student, his neighbor, as himself. Mr. Brown knew something important, that we are all connected, deeply connected to the very roots of our existence. We are all Mr. Brown. We are all Speedo Green. We are all the rich man, but we are also Lazarus. We are brothers of Abraham. We are the brothers of the rich man, and we are the love that welcomes Lazarus into the eternal flock. Perhaps John Donne put this best in the verses that gave Ernest Hemingway the title of his book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. The book's title is a reference to the ringing of church bells at a funeral, for whom the bell tolls, meaning who has died. But it comes amidst a greater poem, actually at the, a poem at the end of a sermon. The end of the sermon goes like this, with a couple adjustments made for antiquated language. <laughs> No one is an island, entire of itself. Every person is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, the continent is less. Anyone's death diminishes me because I am involved in humankind. Therefore, do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Amen.